You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Braitman. Today, I'm sitting down with John Farragon to talk about a recent update to the IAS USA guidelines. For those who may not know, IAS USA is the International Antiviral Society USA. Welcome again, John. Yeah, thanks, Mariana. Glad to be here today. So, John, I understand that the IAS USA guidelines were recently published published in JAMA or the Journal of the American Medical Association in December of 2022. And I was wondering if you could start by highlighting when to start for initial therapy for HIV infection. Um, yeah, sure. I, I can do that. Um, these, you know, this, these guidelines obviously are, 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 I think are important, um, just important just for everybody to know, you know, we are, are, you know, the grant that we work under, you know, really uh, focuses on DHHS guidelines and it's usually what we train on. Um, but the ISUSA guidelines are also helpful too, because they are published in, in JAMA. And for like those of you who are training, like uh, training people, it's, it's a great, easy, easy read for people to kind of take a look at. Um, so I encourage you to, to kind of take a look at it, but also realize that there's DHHS guidelines and there might be some nuances and differences. But um, the, the question of what to start and when to start, I think is an important one, uh, Mariana. And uh, you asked that question and, you know, it's really no different than it has been for previous versions. So, you know, when to start for the IAS USA guidelines, um, the recommendation is to start as soon as possible after diagnosis, you know, ideally within seven days. Um, in places that can do this, and you know, and have the established infrastructure for it, uh, we certainly should be getting people on therapy on the same day as diagnosis or at the first clinic visit if the patient is ready, um, especially if there's no suspicion for concurrent opportunistic infections, all right? So that's a, that's a real nice, a really important caveat. It's two in particular, tuberculosis and, and cryptococcal meningitis. So those are the two that, that we that we worry about um, uh, for, for, um, for, for, for people. So um, and TB meningitis, actually. So if there is a concern for these opportunistic infections, ART is recommended to, uh, to uh, you know, within two weeks of initiation uh, of treatment for most OIs. Uh, but as an example, when you're looking at active TB without evidence of tubercular meningitis, so if you don't have meningitis, ART should be started within two weeks after initiation of TB treatment, especially for those people with T cells less than 50. But if TB meningitis is diagnosed, it's suspected that the hydrosteroids have to be initiated along with the TB treatment. And then we wait, usually ART is usually initiated within two weeks after starting um, TB treatment and steroids. So again, you just have to make sure you're understanding it if they have certain OIs that, that things may be a little bit different. Another OI that requires us to wait to start is cryptococcal meningitis. Um, 
For these individuals, ART should be initiated usually two to four weeks after starting antiviral or antifungal therapy for cryptococcal meningitis. You know, of note, however, is the ART naive patient uh, who has asymptomatic cryptococcal antigenemia. So if they're cryptantigen positive uh, with a negative lumbar puncture, um, and they have no evidence of meningitis, you might be able to start antiretroviral therapy immediately. So basically, rapid start for everybody. Seven days is the maximum amount of time you want to wait. Earlier is better. If you have the infrastructure in place, uh, it's usually going to be two weeks for TB and two to four weeks for uh, for uh, for cryptococcal uh, meningitis. There are some nuances with some of these some of these situations when they have OIs, and I encourage you to read uh, the DHHS guidelines as well to take a look and see see what those recommend. Thanks so much for reviewing that. Um, but I'm wondering what medication specifically should providers be starting with for patients? Yeah, so we know that you know we're going to start pretty much everybody, but as to what to start, the ISUSA guidelines has a what they call you know rec, uh, you know recommended for most patients, um, and that these are in alphabetical order, so there's no option is better. One option is not better than the other. Um, but uh, BICTAF FTC, this is so this is Bictegavir, tenofovir, with with emtricitabine, so BICTAF FTC, single tablet regimen. This is a, an INSTE, so it's an integrase. Uh, strand transfer inhibitor plus two nucleosides. And that's one of the options for people to start with. The other option um, would be two tablets daily and, and it includes dolutegavir plus uh, TAF or TDF. So either tenofovir or tenofovir with either FTC, which is emtricitabine or 3TC, which is lamivudine. And again, that's going to be an INSTE plus two nuke regimen. So it's going to be dolutegavir plus, plus two nukes. Um, but the way this is done, because Tivike or dolutegavir isn't combined with um, TAF or TDF uh, with FTC or 3TC, you have to use um, the two tablets two tablets separately. And then finally, the third one here, Mariana, which is there, is um, dolutegavir 3TC. Um, there's a couple of caveats with this one. This is a two-drug regimen, uh, but there's a couple of things that you have to be important that are important for us to know. Most importantly is that you have to really rule out hepatitis B co-infection shouldn't be shouldn't be present. So as for rapid start, this regimen should not be used for rapid initiation uh, when the genotype, especially you know, on the HIV RNA and the hepatitis B serologies are not yet available. There's also some question whether or not this regimen does as well in patients with viral loads that are over 500,000. So really you need three things before you start dolutegavir 3TC alone. You need hep B serologies, you probably should have HIV resistance testing, and you have to make sure that the viral load is less than 500,000. But if all those things, you know, if you can get that pretty quickly and within a couple of days, which most places probably can because the viral load takes some time, um, you know, um, it would be a one tablet daily regimen. But again, for rapid start, this isn't something that you, you would want to do. Um, there's also some, some modifications here for people who may be receiving PrEP, all right? So one of the things that comes up a lot is that if somebody's on PrEP and they and they either stop taking PrEP or have, you know, been non-adherent to it and they wind up getting HIV infection, what do you do with those patients? So if you're on Capotegavir-based PrEP, which is the injectable, um, they should be started on Darunavir with Cobicistab with either TAF-FTC or TDF-3TC. So again, a boosted PI-based regimen until insta resistance testing is available. And if they're on oral PrEP, let's say they're taking uh, TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC for oral oral uh, PrEP for, for pre-exposure prophylaxis, you can use um, an INSTE-based regimen uh, here with two nukes um, and being sure to draw a genotype of baseline and modify your therapy as you need to. As you need to. 
So really, you know, for the most part, if you're on TAF or TDF FTC or TDF FTC or TAF FTC for prep, you could probably just go on any of the any of the options that, that are above, but you want to make sure you have two nukes. And then if you have injectable prep, because you're worried about cavotegavir, potential cavotegavir failures, that you really should be on um, a boosted PI until you get the integrated uh, resistance testing testing done. So a few comments on this, Mary. So, so it's very similar to DHHS guidelines, with the exception that really at DHHS, for at least for, for treatment-naive patients, the fourth option that's that's there for, for, for uh, DHHS is that we have dolutegavir or bacavir 3TC. That's the one that requires the HLA testing for the bacavir, and we've talked about that before. Um, but that's the only thing that's on DHHS that's not on the IES USA guidelines. And, you know, it's where the IES USA has kind of moved away from that as an option because of the Abacavir, where DHHS has has it, has it still in their guidelines. So little nuances, but again, I think most people would probably start an INSTE plus one or two nucleosides for, for the vast majority of patients that they're going to be seeing for, for new infections. Can you talk a little bit about what to use in pregnancy? Yes, pregnancy is, a, is a, an important topic, and especially <clears throat> some people apply these guidelines to um, also to women of childbearing age. And I don't know if you have to do that or not, but um, you know, if there's clearly if somebody's actively trying to get pregnant, you want to keep these things in mind. Or if they come into your to your office and they are pregnant, you have to think about these things too, whether or not you have to switch drugs around. But clearly, it's an important issue. With our biggest concern is going to be obviously for teratogenicity. So. Over the years, these recommendations have changed, but this version of the guidelines recommends the following. So TAF-3TC or TAF-FTC plus dolutegavir. Um, however, TDF-FTC or TDF-3TC plus dolutegavir are also terms if the TAF's not available. So just important here is that TAF is now on the guidelines for pregnancy here in the IAS-USA guidelines and also in the DHHS guidelines. Dolutegavir is, is preferred here. Um, you could also use raltegavir if, if you needed to, and that's also in DHHS guidelines. But Remember, dolutegavir a few years ago was kind of hit for the, um, and then that Sampano study, there was some concern about um, neural tube defects early on, and that kind of got, got put to rest over the last couple of years. So dolutegavir, which is Tivacay, is really um, you know the mainstay, I think, of, for second-generation integrase inhibitors. You'll notice that bictegavir is not here. Um, it may be okay, but we don't really know yet. It's not on the guidelines, so it's not something I would do in pregnancy at this point until there's more data uh, or until it's on the guidelines. When dolutegavir is widely available, um, uh, we, you know, additional options can be considered if dolutegavir is not an option. Um, so raltegavir would be an option. You could do adazanavir, ritonavir, darunavir, ritonavir. Ropivirine is another option. And again, in addition, in addition to two, the two nucleosides, either TDF-FTC or, or TAF-FTC. So that's kind of the kind of the story with pregnancy. You know, I would encourage you to, um, to take a look at the guidelines in, in more detail as they discuss, you know, some of the issues around pregnancy. But, um, you know, just know that uh, some of these regimens might have to be given uh, more frequently because of uh, changes in drug levels in certain trimesters as well. So we have to be careful. But the the dolutegavir and the, the TAF-FTC, TDF-FTC are all going to be okay for, for, for those patients without having to make any dosage changes. Now, what about switching therapy? Do the guidelines address that? Um, yeah. So this is an important piece too, um, when to switch therapy. So there's a good section that reviews the switching of ARV therapy, especially in people who are already virologically suppressed. So there's a section on changing to two drug regimens and also two drug injectable capotegavir rupivirine has been added as well. So just word of caution, if you're using a two drug regimen, these are usually devoid of um, either TDF or TAF and often 3TC or FTC are also not included. So therefore, 
And your patients with hepatitis B or active hepatitis B, so surface antigen positive is going to be most of those patients, um, these regimens would not be appropriate since the coverage of hepatitis B would not be successful uh, with, um, for example, cabropivirine injection or even dolutegravir ropivirine, which is a common one that we sometimes do in patients, and also even dolutegravir 3TC, that treatment naive uh, regimen I mentioned earlier. Um, of interest for you, those who do not, who do a lot of resistance testing and are versed in that area of every treatment, there's a nice section that specifically discusses um, the use of dolutegravir or bictegravir containing regimens with TAF-FTC in the setting of resistance, and importantly, TAF resistance, which is that K65R and the M184V. So for those of you who've been around doing this long enough, K65R with TAF is a big problem because you worry that it's not going to be um, it's not going to be effective. Um, but there is maybe counterintuitive, but there's some data supporting this strategy and using reusing those drugs. And I encourage you to take a look at some of the guidelines. And um, the the Nadia study is, is is probably the best example where the close to I think it was over half the patients had had K65R, and they reused TAF or TDF, and the patients did okay. Um, and they did very well with either dolutegravir or boosted PI-based regimen. So quoting the guidelines specifically, these ISUSI guidelines, they say use of dolutegravir plus TXF or XTS, so basically TAF or TDF with either 3TC or FTC or BIC FTC TAF, in patients with viral suppression and a document history of M24 and K65R, is supported by existing data from some of the switch and failure studies. So situations where such regimens might be chosen include limited treatment options, avoiding drug interactions, or to maximize treatment simplicity to enhance adherence. So some of these things that we do um, for resistance reasons that we used to avoid a couple of years ago have now kind of fallen into favor <clears throat> with some of the data that we have from some of the some of the failure studies that are, that are out there. So. I encourage you to take a look at this section because it does actually highlight this specifically this K65 and this M184V in particular as um, as uh, as being uh, while it causes resistance, you reusing those drugs may actually be effective if you're combining with dolutegravir or or a boosted PI. We've covered quite a lot today. Any other major changes that stood out to you in this most recent update? Yeah, so I'll just highlight a few more things and I encourage you. There's a lot of different sections here, but. Regard to weight gain, IHUSA guidelines recommend documenting weight and BMI at baseline, also at six-month intervals for people starting treatment or switching regimens to identify those who uh, with excess weight gain. Um, and also yearly diabetes screenings and, and assessments of CBD risk scores for patients um, receiving NCD-based heart. Exercise and diet to support people who gain greater than 5% of body weight. Um, there's a nice section on aging which highlights some of the management of comorbidities throughout the lifespan. And this, this is an increasingly important issue because people with HIV are living longer and confronting the health challenges of aging. Um, management of substance abuse is also there as well. Um, and now uh, PrEP, which now includes not only the oral meds, but also the long-acting injectable is now included. And there's an, a section on the implications of SARS-CoV-2 pandemic and even monkeypox virus outbreak. Again, these are continue to have a major effect on people with HIV and delivery of services. Monkeypox, I think, has been kind of at bay. But again, we still um, have patients with HIV who are getting infected with SARS-CoV-2. You know, and now with some of the changes from, from the, even in the COVID guidelines, you know, about not being able to use some of the monoclonal antibodies, you know, for these immunocompromised patients, you know, vaccination really is the, is the mainstay unless you're going to use 
you know, for treatment unless they get it. And then you can use Paxlovid or Molnupiravir depending on the drug interactions. Um, remdesivir might be an option too. So that's pretty much it on that section. As we begin to wrap up, any final thoughts that listeners should be aware of? Yeah, so Marietta, this this is an important, um, it's important that these guidelines are a quick read. I think that's the most important issue that, you know, it's about maybe 12 to 15 pages long. So it's great for trainees. And as a, anybody's looking for a top line on evidence-based HIV guidelines, it's a great, great place to go. They're very well written, reflects the current standard of care. And oftentimes, many of the people who are on the DHHS guideline panels may actually be on the IASUSA panel as well. So again, a lot of similar similar uh, thought leaders throughout the country are on, are on uh, maybe on both guidelines. Um, for more in-depth guidelines, you can obviously go to our DHHS guidelines, which be which was where I would go. They're much more comprehensive and they're longer. Uh, but again, for an easy read for IASUSA to kind of get a gist of what's happening in HIV, it includes prep. It includes a lot of the things that we talked about today in uh, you know initial therapy. It's virtually identical with the exception of Triumac. I, you know, I think it is a good, a good place to go for a, for a quick read for more information. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about the latest with the IAS USA guidelines. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about NICA AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nicaatc.org. That's www.necaaetc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know. This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.